After decades of traveling across Cuba, Christopher Baker knows something many politicians don't. Cubans wholeheartedly love Americans, and they demonstrate that in every meeting that you have with a Cuban. One of the world's leading authorities on tourism in Cuba is back to tell us about the motorcycle tours he started leading across the island. And Americans won't have to sneak in through Mexico or Canada to get there either. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll also hear what author Graham Robbs discovered about the ancient Celts, how they organized and mapped their world all the way from the Black Sea to Scotland on a sophisticated, celestial-based form of mathematics. What seems to be insignificant and uncontrolled is in fact part of a pattern. If you're in on the secret, you realize what the pattern means, but you're only shown a little part of it. Graham Robb conjures up a Celtic view of Iron Age Europe that's been hidden for centuries. And we'll make time for some friendly conversation and song, Irish style, in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. When Graham Robb embarks on a bicycle journey, he's liable to come back with a groundbreaking book. He'll join us in July to talk about his intimate portrayal of the regions of France that he wrote in his book, The Discovery of France. Today, he joins us to discuss his latest work about the lost world of the ancient Celts. That and some genuine Irish banter and good cheer will get you in the real spirit of St. Patrick's Day in just a bit. Let's open up today's Travel with Rick Steves with a novel way to visit Cuba. After 30 years of research trips to Cuba, last year Christopher P. Baker led the first group of Americans on an authorized motorcycle tour since the Castro Revolution. They rode past fields waving with sugarcane and tobacco and were welcomed into small towns where their modern Harleys were no doubt quite an attraction. Chris, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Rick, it's tremendous to be back with you. So this is exciting. There's American tour groups that are going by motorcycle through Cuba in spite of the embargo. Tell us about it. Oh, you have no idea how thrilled I am. You know, I've been waiting two decades to lead uh, group tours after my own motorcycle journey in 96. And last year, we, uh, I managed to get a license from the Treasury Department for a company in Texas called Moto Discovery that does motorcycle tours and training around the world. We got a license to operate group tours in Cuba. And in January 2013, the first tours for U.S. citizens, group tours by motorcycle, happened in Cuba. So this is completely legal. You didn't go through Yucatan or Canada. You didn't have to fake anything. This is above board. People are signing up for this tour, flying from Miami to Havana and setting off on their motorcycles. Yeah, absolutely. It's what's called a people-to-people license issued by the Treasury Department, and any U.S. citizen can sign up. Of course, you know, we, we do require that you have motorcycle experience. Okay, so this people-to-people, that's the, the new opening, and uh, I would imagine there's small tour companies of all different stripes, not just motorcycle companies that are putting together, quote, people-to-people tours to Cuba. Sure, that's absolutely correct. This is a category that was first created under Clinton, and then Bush did away with it. Obama resurrected it. The ostensible rationale is that we're going to have these cultural encounters in Cuba throughout the program. The ostensible rationale is that, you know, we're helping spread democracy. But in essence, you're meeting Cubans and learning about Cubans, and Cubans are learning about you. And the motorcycle groups are a people-to-people Experience. It sounds like it's made to order because Cuba has its uh, Harley clubs, its Harlistas, right? I would imagine crowds would gather in these little towns as you're out going on cross-country. What was that like? Was it news when you came into a little town with 14 Americans on, on motorcycles? Oh, Rick, it's fantastic. You know, in, in my book about motorcycling through Cuba, I, I wrote uh, an anecdotal experience of arriving solo in the town of Sancti Spiritu and parking in the plaza. And, you know, I had a 1,000cc BMW back then, and uh, suddenly there were 100 males <laughs> running all around. And, and then there was like this gravitational force that pulled in everybody, and the, the whole plaza was packed. Well, I loved it when this year we returned for the first time with a group tour, and we parked in the same spot, <laughs> and the same thing happened. And we were, the police were trying to clear the crowds. It was fantastic. You mentioned the Harleys. There are Harleys in Cuba, of course, but they're all pre-revolutionary. Uh, they're kept together, kept running by these aficionados, these fanatics, they're called the Harlistas, 
And our tour leader, one of my very close friends, is Luis Enrique Gonzalez. He is uh, the president of the Harley-Davidson Club of Cuba. And The Harley-Davidson Club of Cuba? What a yeah, concept. Yeah, it's the oldest, apparently it's the <laughs> oldest uh, one still in existence in the world, uh, the Harley Club. And these things have been jerry-rigged and wired together since the embargo <laughs> yeah. started. Because you got that 1950s time warp with the old Chevys and the big American cars. Does the same thing work in the motorcycle world? Oh, Absolutely. Relatively few of them. There are only about 250 on the entire island that are still running. So they may look like a Harley or it may look like a Chevy, but underneath that hood, there's going to be lots of um, improvisation. Yeah, many of the parts (laughs) made by themselves. Right. Hey, when you think about touring uh, the Cuban countryside, just talk about being on the road in a motorcycle. You you drove 2,000 miles in a couple of weeks, I understand, with your group circling the island from Havana. What were some of the highlights of, of the actual touring well, of course, you know, when you're on a motorcycle, you're, you're experiencing things firsthand. There's no windows and no car around you. And so the sensations of being part of, of the countryside, of being one with the farmers, with their ox carts, etc., is much more profound. Uh, but the motorcycles put us in very, very close contact with the Cubans themselves. They're an ideal way of running a people-to-people program. Cubans themselves use motorcycles. They use these old Russian Urals or Czechoslovakian MZs. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you come to a stop at a gas station or whatever, and the Cubans just, they just come around you. They just <laughs> want to know, what kind of motorcycle is that? You know, we use BMWs, which we bring in from Europe, and they haven't seen these, these motorcycles. You know, Oh, they must just drool with envy when they see you. Oh, they do drool, but they want to know. And always, you know, the males, usually the males. And, uh, of course, it's the same old question. What is this? How big is it? And how fast does it go? (laughs) Now, of course, Cuba is a communist state. There's no freedom of expression. Are these people in the middle of small town Cuba, are they comfortable approaching Americans and just talking about the sport of of, uh, motorcycle road fun? Oh, absolutely. I think it's very important to say that Cubans wholeheartedly love Americans, and Mm -hmm. they demonstrate that in every meeting that you have with a Mm -hmm. Cuban. So there's no uptightness because of that. They're not being political. No. It's just a celebration of um, passions oh. and getting together people to people in the spirit of this whole new kind of way to get a visa for Americans to visit Cuba. Oh, absolutely. Did you meet uh, actual sugarcane or tobacco farmers? You know, you have all kinds of meeting. Uh, the first trip that we did, uh, we had what I call the Sugar 101. It was the harvest season, and <laughs> uh, we're just cruising down the highway, and we're always looking for these impromptu people-to-people experiences. And the sugar cane, uh, what they call macheteros, were cutting the cane by hand, and we stopped, and we, you know, we mingled with them, went into the cane fields, tried cutting ourselves. and They let you pick up their machetes and cut some cane? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy, let me tell you. It's hot, dirty work. Yeah, there, all of a sudden, your tour has a few less people on it, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher P. Baker is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He shipped his motorcycle to Cuba in 1996 to ride 7,000 miles researching the Moon Handbook to Cuba. From that, he wrote Mi Moto Fidel, Motorcycling Through Castro's Cuba. In 2008, Chris received the Lowell Thomas Award for Travel Journalist of the Year. He's now leading Americans on motorcycle tours of Cuba and working on a documentary called Cuba Soul. It's about restoring Ernest Hemingway's long-lost 1955 convertible in Cuba. There's more on his website at ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, did you go to Trinidad? This is just a time-warped, old colonial, cobbled town. What was that like? It's my favorite place outside Havana, actually. It's a UNESCO World Heritage City that has been... um, retained as an authentic colonial city in its entirety, no cars in the center of the town. Mm. And one of the highlights there is we get together with my friend Julio Munoz and go into his house, beautiful colonial home. And I would think when you have a, a tour, any kind of good tour, your tour or somebody else's tour, just that opens up a lot of people-to-people experiences you might, you might not have otherwise, a case like that. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the other favorite ones that we had was in the eastern part of the country. There was a community where... Uh, family cooperatives uh, make little marble souvenirs to sell to the state. And we stopped and the lathe that is being used to cut this marble is made from a transmission of an old larder. The chain is from a bicycle. The <laughs> crankshaft, etc., is made from uh, a spindle that they made themselves. The whole lathe is, is handmade. Uh, it's, uh, that's Cuba. You know, I was, I was in Nicaragua during our American embargo against Nicaragua. And so impressive, the creativity in the field expediencies is these humble little economies find a way to carry on in spite of the fact that they can't get any parts from outside very easily. When you were traveling around uh, Cuba with your motorcycle group, 
I understand you stopped at the Bay of Pigs and at the Cuban side of the Guantanamo Bay military installation. Talk just for a sec about why the Bay of Pigs, what's there, and, and what was the experience like at Guantanamo Bay? Well, of course, you have to do the Bay of Pigs if you go to Cuba and do an all-Cuba program. Um, that is plays such an important part of both American and Cuban history, and so we go there to the museum to get the Cuban perspective on things. And Christopher, you took your group to uh, the Guantanamo, at least the Cuban side of the Guantanamo Bay military installation. What was that like? Well, that was fascinating. Uh, for me, it was a, a tremendous experience, not least because 20 years of going to Cuba, I uh, never got to the Cuban military side. Guantanamo itself is a Cuban city, 20 kilometers from the base itself, and we got permission with a military escort and police escort to go to the Cuban military side, uh, which is obviously a restricted zone, and we got to see the base from a distance. But the highlight for me was meeting with the Cuban workers who unbelievably had continued to commute to the U.S. naval base and continued to work after the revolution on a daily basis for the U.S. government until the last one retired in January 2013. (laughs) Rather remarkable. They were grandfathered in, and even though they're now retired, once a month a representative crosses into the base to collect retirement funds, a pension fund, $400,000 a month for all the different workers. And with a motorcycle group, we got to meet the last three retirees. They speak English, they're Jamaican heritage, right there in the city of Guantanamo. Christopher, let's wrap it up just by talking about the roads. What are the roads like? Is it easy to fill up? Uh, Do you drive at night? Is the countryside lit up? Uh, What's it like to be on the road on a motorcycle? Well, you certainly don't want to be riding at night. There are very few lights and a lot of stray animals. You know, even the freeway, you get ox carts that just trundle across the freeway or even going against traffic in the fast lane. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but most roads are paved. Um, we use BMW F800 and 650s that are made for off-roading, and there's one 40-kilometer section of an unpaved road that's badly done up. Uh, the enduro riders amongst us love it, of course. It, it adds a little adventure to things, and, it, of course, it slows the Harley-Davidsons down, but it's very easy riding around Cuba. And then just entice me. Let's say you, you enjoy just being on the open road, and you've done it a lot in the United States. Now you're on the open road in Cuba, sitting there in your, on your motorcycle, the smells, the people, the insects, the heat. What's the feeling when you're just in your glory as a motorcyclist in Cuba? <laughs> well, Rick, you know, there were two or three occasions when I just let out this huge woohoo, and that says it all, you know. I, yeah. I, it was just a sense of, wow, this is, I'm being paid to do this. This is amazing. <laughs> Fantastic. Christopher Baker, thank you so much for your insight into Cuba. And uh, it is quite promising. There are ways that we can enjoy people-to-people connections now between the United States and the people of Cuba. Rick, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. From motorcycles in Cuba, we switch next to the amazing things a bicycle trip from Portugal to the Alps taught Graham Robb about the sophisticated world of the ancient Celts. The author of The Discovery of Middle-Earth joins us for a mind-blowing look at the pre-Roman Celtic world. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org.
It started out as a relatively straightforward bicycle journey along the fabled Heraclean Way. That's the route Hercules is said to have traveled to the ends of the earth, from Portugal all the way to the Alps. What Graham Robb didn't expect is that this route would lead him to the lost world of the Celts and Druids from more than 2,000 years ago. That was back before Roman invaders pushed the Celts north and destroyed much of the evidence of their advanced society. His latest book is called The Discovery of Middle-Earth, and it maps out the lost world of the Celts, a sophisticated society that Graham Robb contends has been overlooked for too long. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. So your book is sort of based on Celts get too little credit. Who were the Celts, and why do they get too little credit? Well, the Celts were really just the majority of the population of Western Europe from about 800 B.C. on. And we can't, we can't really say the Celts were one particular group of people because there were Celts in the extreme southwest of Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. And at the same time, there were Celtic tribes, tribes who spoke a Celtic language, way out to the east beyond Switzerland in, in the, the Eastern Alps. Hmm. And the Romans themselves didn't really know who the Celts were. But it's great when you look at these historical maps and you can see how different peoples were bullied and pushed around over the centuries. And I've got this image of Celts sort of populating much of Europe, but then more aggressive people came and they pushed Celts to the less desirable fringes. And today we think of Celtic uh, peoples in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Brittany, Cornwall, and so on. When we think of later history, is that where the Celts ended up? Yeah, that's true. That is a, a much later development. They were pushed out towards the fringes of Europe. And that's when the Celts began to look like a distinct ethnic group, whereas before they were as, as diverse as the, the population of Europe. It was with the uh, invasions and the settlement of the Anglo-Saxons in Britain that the people originally defined as Celtic were pushed out towards the, the fringe, the less productive parts of uh, Western Europe, in particular Brittany, Wales, Ireland, and, and northern Scotland, western Scotland. Would they have related languages today? Yes, they do have related languages, and those languages are related to much older Celtic languages. What are the Celtic languages that survive today? Uh, there's Breton in Brittany, and then the various forms of Celtic that are spoken in Wales and Ireland and Scotland. And uh, the original Celtic language of continental Europe became extinct by about 600 AD, and no one really knows mm. why it disappeared so completely. And by then, there were just a few people in remote rural areas who still spoke the ancient language. We know very little about that original Celtic language. In your book, uh, well, in my mind, Celtic people are these hard scrabble people eking out an existence in hard scrabble lands, and they're they're kind of crude. And uh, in your book, you, you mentioned that's really the result of Roman propaganda. What do you mean by that? Well, the Romans liked to think of the Celts as mud-smeared hooligans who were a threat to the Roman Empire. When the Romans conquered large parts of Western Europe, their aim was not to spread civilization. Their aim was to protect Rome and to create a, a safe buffer zone between uh, the wild barbarians of the rest of Europe and Rome. And when they marched into Gaul and then Britain, they were primarily interested in wealth, which took the form of precious metals and particularly slaves. And there was some opposition to the, the genocidal tactics of the Romans in Rome itself. And so it was important for the Romans to say they're not really human, they're like animals. And uh, fortunately, we know from the archaeological record, but also from Greek writers, that that's a, a travesty. It, it wasn't like that at all. Well, you know, when you go to London, you see that dramatic statue of Queen Boadicea. She was a Celt that stood up against the Romans, wasn't she? Yes, she led a rebellion against Rome. And that is a typical Celtic trait, that it was a woman who became the leader. They had a matrilineal succession in a lot of parts of, of Celtic Europe. This was particularly shocking to the Romans, that a woman could single-handedly destroy the three main centers of Roman power in Britain. And it was presented as a kind of wild rampage. This is what happened if the passion of a Celtic woman was uh, unleashed. Yeah. But in fact, it was a very highly organized, well-supplied military campaign because you can't wipe out three 
major Roman towns in a very short space of time without very careful planning. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the Celtic world uh, with Graeme Robb. Graeme's written a book called The Discovery of Middle-Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts. So, Graeme, when you think about Celts being victims of propaganda, I guess the flip side of that is they're more sophisticated than we give them credit for. In your research for writing The Discovery of Middle-Earth, what dimensions of Celtic culture did you find that were impressive because they were so sophisticated? The discovery that really most pleased me was the temples of the Celts all over Europe took a very particular shape. It looks like a rectangle that's been drawn by a child or a person who can't draw straight. And this seems to fit in with Roman propaganda. They didn't Mm -hmm. bother having a tidy square or rectangle. But actually, those rectangles are a, a particular shape that's produced when you draw an ellipse, which is the, the shape of the sun's yearly course through yeah. the sky. And that's very typically Celtic, that what seems to be insignificant and uncontrolled is in fact part of a pattern. And if you're in on the secret, you realize what the pattern means, but you're only shown a little part of it. That's amazing, because reading through your book, it's filled with math. I mean, these maps, you can draw these grand schemes on the maps, and it was it just can't be accidental. They were quite sophisticated in their in their mapping and in their in their math. Yes, they were. For us, it's not complicated math at all. It's basic Euclidean geometry, which they seem to have learned from the Greeks because the big influence on the Celtic world early on, before Rome was an empire, came from Greece. Graham Robbs, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves right now, telling us what he uncovered about the Celts of long ago, which he outlines in The Discovery of Middle-Earth, published by Norton. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Steve's on the line calling in from Albany in Oregon. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, I do have a question. Uh, I'm an engineer, and my wife and I are in the early stages of planning a trip to, to Scotland, and we're very interested in the science and engineering of ancient peoples. And so we're interested in what sites would be good to see, especially sites that you can get to without having to having a car. Not having a car is a great advantage, really. Um, if you have a bicycle, that's quite useful. But if you're going to Scotland, I think the place to start is the line from... Glasgow to Edinburgh, where the Romans built the Antonine Wall. And the interesting thing about the places along the Antonine Wall, which looks like a Roman frontier like Hadrian's Wall, is that a lot of them had Celtic names and were there before the Romans. There are very few Celtic remains actually to be seen on the ground. But if you go along the Antonine Wall, you know that you'll be following a Celtic path that crossed northern Britain at its narrowest point. And depending on which direction you go in, you could go to either the museum in Glasgow or the wonderful National Museum in Edinburgh, where you'll find all sorts of wonderful, almost microscopic objects of Celtic art. And as an engineer, you'll you'll appreciate, probably better than some art historians, that these objects, which seem to be based on an individual's fantasy and imagination, are actually based on mathematical patterns, very precise geometric patterns. And once you work out the relatively simple intersecting circles that produce the pattern, uh, you realize that you're just seeing, as with the temples, a little part of, of that pattern. So I think if you're interested in Celts, you've, you've picked one of the best countries to go to. Hey, Steve, you've got some interesting sightseeing coming up in Scotland. Thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to reading the book, too. Yeah, it, it, it is a fascinating book. Best wishes, Steve, on your trip. Yeah, thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graeme Robb in his book, The Discovery of Middle-Earth. Graeme, when you look at a museum and you find these exquisite bits of Celtic uh, jewelry or whatever, ballpark, what century would that be usually? Well, the classical period of Celtic art is pretty much 1st century B.C. And when did the Romans come into Britain? Um, well, Julius Caesar had a, a raiding party or two uh, around about 55, 54 B.C., but the first serious invasion was 43 AD, and that's when the Romans moved into Britain very, very quickly. So the Celts flourished until the Romans came in the first century. What did the Romans see? I mean, if you were there, a Roman, coming across the English Channel, 
trying to establish the Roman Empire and, and establish Britannia and setting up your base in Londinium. What did they see when it comes to the existing uh, society? Well, we now know, thanks to greatly improved archaeological techniques, that instead of finding the barbarians that uh, they'd heard about from Roman writers, they found people who lived in towns with streets uh, that were divided into different districts, residential and in industrial and religious. And they would have been surprised probably to find that uh, they could get red wine from mm. Italy and even Greece. And they could even snack on Mediterranean olives. And it's only recently that archaeologists have dug down low enough to discover that towns did exist in Britain before the Romans, despite what Caesar said. He said they just fortify their tangled woods and uh -huh. call it a town. To what degree did the fact that the Celts did not write down their history and the Romans did shape what we understand today? Yeah, it had a huge effect. And, and also the fact that uh, the Romans built in stone, whereas the Celts usually built in timber. Mm -hmm. And structural archaeologists have shown that some of the timber structures of the Celts, some of their wooden mansions, were greater feats of engineering than any Greek or Roman temple. And in fact, the Druids, who were the intelligentsia of the Celts, were literate. It's often said they were illiterate because they passed on their, their knowledge in their schools in the form of verse, which was memorized by mm. the pupils. But it was a very literate society because writing implements have been found all over the Celtic world. And in fact, one of our main sources on the extinct continental Celtic language is uh, curse tablets and love tokens that were etched by relatively uneducated people. And one of the very few complete sentences of ancient Celtic that we know says, Nata Wimpi Kormida, which means pretty girl, give me some beer. This was written to a fiancé. So even relatively uneducated people were literate and knew how to read and write. Now that's a sophisticated society. Pretty girl, give me some beer. Yeah. <laughs> I like and it. it was obviously uh, not quite as sophisticated as asking for wine, but we know they, they also love Greek wine. Now, in your, <laughs> in your studies, Graham, were there any characters that you just were really struck by? It just seems to me that in prehistoric or, or societies that didn't have a, a developed sort of written history, you don't really know the characters, the personalities. Who's your favorite Celtic personality? Well, the, the one I found most impressive was a man called Divikiarchus, whose name means the Avenger. And he was Caesar's best friend in Gaul because his tribe was briefly allied to Rome. And he was also, we know from another source, a druid. And far from being one of these uh, mystic, muddled, white-robed priests, he was a diplomat and a politician. He was one of the very few non-Romans to address the Roman Senate. And he stayed in Rome in Cicero's house on the Palatine Hill and wrote a eulogy to his host. And he was also a philosopher and he was a scientist, he was a mathematician and a diplomat. You know, he was in some ways more cosmopolitan than many Roman politicians and yet he was a druid. And from a history point of view, he happened to be friends of Caesar's and they wrote about him in Rome and we know about him today. Yes, that's right, mm -hmm. yes. As you say, there are few individuals that we know about from this period. Fascinating. Graham Robb has written a remarkable study of the lost world of the ancient Celts, and he's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book is called The Discovery of Middle-Earth. It was released in the UK with the title The Ancient Paths, Discovering the Lost Map of Celtic Europe. Jake's joining us now on the phone at 877-333-7425, calling in from Bend in Oregon. Hi, Jake. Hi, Graham. Hi, Rick. Now, when I was in Ireland, I was told that the Irish Celts adopted Christianity so readily because there were so many correlations between the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and the early Christian Celtic beliefs. Could you kind of describe some of the pre-Christian Celtic beliefs and then maybe comment on that idea that perhaps there was enough of a correlation that it made adoption of Christianity an easy adoption? Yes, you're exactly right, and that's a very well-made point, because there are very direct correlations between Druidism, or Celtic religion, and the early forms of Christianity. For example, I mentioned just now the elliptical form, the implicit elliptical form that their temples took. And we know from some of the early saints, in particular St. Patrick, 
that uh, one of the early Christian rituals involved processing sunwise in the direction of the sun around the temple or the well that was to be consecrated. And that's something that clearly comes directly from the Celts. And some of the early saints in Ireland were called Druids. This was the name that was applied to them. And when you look at the historical reality of some of the earliest saints, like uh, St. Bridget, who's the female patron saint of Ireland, you realize there are very curious correlations between these individuals and Celtic gods, because Bridget had the name of a Celtic goddess. And the stories, some of the stories of her life say that she was brought up or fostered by a druid. So those elements of ritual do show a continuity between the Celts and Christianity. Jake, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. Yeah, when you look at the maps and the charts in your book, you can see that this is all cohesive, and it's like there's a grand plan, and it's not some creepy theory about visitors from outer space. These are real people uh, who could uh, sell the Romans some wine when they decided to take them over. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Graham, when you when you go sightseeing today, or let's say you've got a friend that's new to this and wants to be just uh, really impressed by how misunderstood and, and relatively sophisticated the Celtic culture was, where's one place you'd take us just to, to really be able to marvel at, at this civilization? Uh, <laughs> that's a very difficult question because um, on the surface, so little remains. Actually, museums are priceless in this respect because you can go to Celtic hill forts and see things on a grand scale and you can you can go to these places that do give you a sense mm-hmm. of belonging to a much wider landscape but you also have to go with a digital camera or a powerful magnifying glass to the museums and see the same kind of impressive organization on a very very small scale mm-hmm. and it's best to go prepared because what I often found was in Vienne, for example, south of Lyon in southern France, I knew they had a fantastic collection of Celtic gold coins. And I spoke to the deputy curator there because I couldn't find them anywhere. They weren't on display. And she said, no, the director said that no one would be interested. And I asked her, why would there be this lack of interest in the Celts? And she said, uh, because they lost to the Romans. It's so true. I mean, I can think of many times I've been in a museum in in Britain or or even beyond, and I've looked at something, I've squinted at it, it's so exquisite and delicate, and I go, oh, those Romans were amazing. And then I realize, no, it's Celtic. These are the people the Romans (laughs) defeated. And it reminds me, we've got a lot to learn when it comes to the Celts. Yes, we do. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of Middle-Earth, Mapping the Lost World of the Celts, thanks so much for this uh, a lot of work you've put into this. This is an amazing story, and it, you've really hit on something. We just don't appreciate the Celtic uh, civilization as we might, and as travelers, I think you've done, a, done us a huge favor. Thanks and best wishes. Thanks very much, Rick. You'll find links to our guests for each week's show in the radio section at ricksteves.com. In just a minute, we'll lift a glass or two in celebration of today's convivial Celts in Ireland. You've got a seat at the best table in the house on Travel with Rick Steves. Parlon o Meldonig is Anamdom. August B. make Tost Oil, Le Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Barry from Cork on the south coast of Ireland, and that was the Gaelic Irish for I Travel with Rick Steves. Parlon o Meldonig is Anamdom. August B. make Tost Oil, Le Rick Steves. I think Ireland's one of the best places in the world for connecting with people, whether it's on the street, in a shop, or certainly in the pubs. Joining us now for a genuine taste of the Irish gift for rewarding conversation is my longtime Irish tour guiding friend Stephen McPhillamy. He lives in the north, in Derry. And from County Cork, deep in the south of Ireland, Liam O'Reardon joins us. He's a singer of traditional Irish ballads. They're here to help us define what the crack, that's spelled C-R-A-I-C, is all about in Ireland. 
Liam and Stephen, welcome. Great to Thanks be here, Rick. Thank you. Is it uh, Guinness or Murphy's, Liam? Definitely Murphy's, Rick. Um, I, I just thought when you order a beer in Ireland, it comes Guinness. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you I, live in a disadvantaged yeah, part of the deep, the deep that's south, true. and that's uh, true. you don't get the uh, Guinness is brewed in Dublin, and I'm led to believe that it has one chemical, which they use to break down the yeast, because it makes they, they have to brew so much. Murphy's is brewed in Cork, where I come from. It doesn't have any chemicals. <laughs> okay. And it's the only city in Cork that I know that brews two stouts. It brews Murphy's stout and Beamish stout. Beamish. 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 Okay, now mm-hmm. a stout. So Guinness is a stout. Mm-hmm. It's the dark beer where you can draw Strong. a shamrock on the head and it's still there mm-hmm. three minutes later. Mm-hmm. We're not uh, drinking Guinness here, but we are drinking a nice beer. Let's say uh, Schlancha. Yeah. Schlancha. 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 And Guinness is drunk all over Ireland. It's stouts very popular up the north, but we don't really have much Murphy's. In Northern Ireland, where I live, Murphy's, we don't drink it at all, really. I mean, people in Northern Ireland have suffered enough. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. You got a corkman here. Did you understand what he said, Rick? I didn't know what was Because that ex- accent is very peculiar. It's not, it's not Irish at all, I think. Corkman, a corkman. <laughs> I've heard that um, County Cork is a is like a, a frame of mind, or what is it about? A state of mind. What's, what's Cork to you? Lee? Well, there was a, a T-shirt produced recently. It said... Irish by birth, Cork by the grace of God. Oh, isn't that nice? So, you know, Stephen? it's just... And the rest of us are all in the background, almost thrown up when we hear all this stuff. And we, we do admire the Cork men, like, for their pride. There's no doubt about that. And Michael Collins came from Cork, Michael right? Collins mm-hmm. came I mean, from he's Cork. sort of the great, the patriotic he's rebel. Them, yeah. huh? Well, but not, well not, not all the country think Collins is great. That, you know, half the country wouldn't, wouldn't have thought okay, that so Collins was a hero. Uh, but... We do admire the Cork men, but everybody loves to beat them and, and poke fun at them. But they're, they're definitely great fun. I remember meeting a Cork businessman once and I said, you're a businessman in Cork. He said, I'm not a businessman. I'm a merchant prince. <laughs> Is that not the worst attempt at a Cork accent? I was going to say, I, not, I think when Stephen does an Irish accent, he do, as an Irishman, he does a Cork accent, don't you? I think I do a Cork accent. He doesn't think I do it right. <laughs> I, I, met, I met a Cork man once. We were talking about the Cork soccer player, Roy Keane, who plays in midfield. I said he's a great midfielder. He said, he's not a midfielder. He's a midfield general. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's delusions of grandeur there. Uh, but I have to say, in fairness, most of our great patriots and sports teams have all come from Cork and in Ireland, if you're good at Gaelic football, you're usually useless at hurling. And if you're good at hurling, you're usually useless at Gaelic football, you know, your county. Now, hurling, and, a lot of Americans might think that's barfing. Oh, sorry, yeah, that's our <laughs> native uh, ancient sport played with sticks and a ball, not throwing up for, you know. Because you know, when we think of, hurling, no, but we should know that when you go to, how would you describe hurling, the, the sport? Well, uh, first Liam? of all, it's the fastest field sport in I know. the world. It seems to me, world. I always say it's, it's like airborne it's hockey with no and, entry um, timeouts. I'm one of the fortunates to come from Cork, where we're, we're both good at hurling, which is our game, and foot and Gaelic football. Hurling is, um, the instruments they use are made of ash. It's like a flat baseball bat, I mm-hmm. would address it as. Usually the length differs and the height of the guy. Oh, it's hard to describe. I suppose it's from time to time people describe it as lacrosse, but I'm sure a lot of the Irish hurlers would prefer to be playing lacrosse sometimes because it wouldn't be as physical or bloodthirsty. You know, I... I don't, I don't know the rules particularly, but it seems to me it's like, you could call it like airborne, like hockey, where you throw the puck. Yes. Yeah. Well, you can throw it, you have to hit it with the hurley. Muhammad Ali watched the final once, and our Prime Minister turned to him and said, would you like to be out there with a the stick, Muhammad? And he said, I'd hate to be out there without one. Well, that's, <laughs> so that's, that's how good. fierce he, a great warrior like him, found no, the game. If you get a chance to see hurling match one in Ireland, I would highly recommend it. We're talking about uh, just that conviviality of Ireland, and, you know, y- you can go into a pub, and when you go to a pub, you don't have to have a, a theme or a reason. You just go there, and you know you're going to get into some good conversation. Do you sit at the bar if you want to connect with people more, or, or what's your tip? Well, I would generally sit at the bar. I've never been to a pub in anywhere in Ireland that if I sat at the bar, somebody didn't say hello or how are you or where you came from. And then if you say Cork, you've got something to talk about. And you're uh, probably... Well, if I say, if it was outside of Cork, I have to defend myself from the beginning, right. verbally, no, yeah. not physically, <laughs> verbally defend myself because some people don't um, Australians and New Zealanders have the same kind of thing exactly. going on. It's, it's like the Aussies and the Kiwis. Yeah. yeah. What about yeah. the Kerry people? Because that's a big, powerful county in the south, isn't it? Yeah, well, they're his arch rivals. The, the, <laughs> the Cork men don't like the Kerry men and vice versa. They had the greatest team ever, Gaelic football. They've won, I think, on average every three years since the game was created in the, in the 1890s. I think they 18... have 33, 34 All-Irelands, one in football. Yeah, whereas my, right? my county, Donegal, has got two, you know, so 
So everybody wants to beat the carry men. So it's like the and, New York, it's like the Yankees and the Mets. Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's your yeah. county, Stephen? My county is, well, I was uh, born in Derry, but I went to school in Donegal, so I cheer for both teams. But if Donegal were playing Derry, I'd go for Donegal. All right. The Eloquence of Ireland's our gift today from Stephen McPhillamy and Liam O'Reardon. They're friends from the north and south of Ireland, and together we're enjoying the Irish gift for banter and good conversation. Those are the basic ingredients of a really good time Irish style. Now, Ireland's famous for its blessings and also its insults. (laughs) It's interesting because you got these Irish blessings. Yes. How how would you bless a, a, a person from County Kerry? Because uh, you're from County Cork. With a hurley. <laughs> with a what? With a hurley. What's a hurley? So that's the stick that we used to play hurley. Oh, the stick. You'd bless them on the, on on the, head, the bump on the, the hurley, head. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or a baseball bat. Yeah. How would you bless somebody, Stephen? Oh, I like to say, uh, we had a great comedian once who used to always say, may your God be with you. So I always like to say that to them, may your God be with you. And then you always see them take a blank stare. With a, what? what did he just say? May your God be with you. Well, the one that I, I always live by is, um, may you... Be in heaven an hour before the devil knows you're dead. That's a nice one. Mm-hmm. That's a very nice That's, one. That to me is very complimentary. When Stephen's trying to do the county uh, Cork accent, he's having big difficulty. He just the accent. What, what are they, how do accents vary in Ireland, Liam? It's amazing for such a small country that each county has its own particular uh, accent. The Donegal one, where Steve comes from, is um, probably an abuse of the ling- English language, to be honest, because they don't, you, you know, they don't pronounce their words properly and. You going to put up with that? No, I'm just waiting to get the chance to intervene here. <laughs> See, a, a couple of years ago, uh, the Irish accent was voted the sexiest in the world, and then the Donegal accent was voted the sexiest in Ireland. So therefore, well, their uh, language is better. Obviously, be... their language is better looking than their men. <laughs> we're, we're in Donegal, where I'm from, it's very famous for its potatoes. You see, and in, in my county, Donegal, his county, Cork, are great rivals for. Growing potatoes were the two real potato counties. Was oh, that right? There's counties that are famous. I thought potatoes mm. were everywhere, but Aye, they no. used to be everywhere. But now these days, you're right. kind of restricted to the. They're the two big producers. Uh-huh. And in Donegal, I've heard that we have 56 varieties of potato. Now I've heard that you know Donegal men can talk about potatoes in the same way that a Frenchman would describe a grape. You know, like a Chardonnay. Or, you know, like we like a we like a dry, fluffy potato. You're driving through Donegal, and there's big signs on the side of the road saying "balls of flour for sale." Because that's what they look like once they're cooked. You know, they're like baking. They're like balls flour. of flour. Yeah. And you'll see signs saying powdery balls for sale. People <laughs> <Powdery balls. laughs> bragging about their potatoes. Yeah. But we call potatoes purties. P-U-R-T-I-E-S. Purties. Uh-huh. And there's a poem we used to learn at school. And we like to eat the potatoes see with the skins on. So the poem was, where do you come from, Donegal? How's your purties, big and small? How do you eat them, skins and all? Don't you choke? Not at all. <laughs> Hardly the stuff of Shakespeare. I saw a bunch of little girls selling potatoes on the side of the road once south of Dublin, and uh, there was some joke about the queen. Actually, there's a type of potato in Cork called queens. Is that yeah. it? And the, well, the potato was originally... They were selling queens. That's what they yes. were doing, I, selling queens, queens bragging about yeah. it. I think that, correct me here maybe, but the, the potato was actually originally called the British Queen. That's right. But after independence, we dropped the British out of the Queen. Just called the Queen. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> once we were... I had you up the north, remember, and there was British Queens for sale, and then we down south, there was Queens for sale. That's it. And then I had a tour member one day had said to me, all these signs on the side of the road, she said... I was explaining the types of potato because there's pinks for sale as well. Cares pinks. Cares pinks. It's very famous. And she said to me, who's Doug Daly? And I said, that's, they're fresh potatoes for God's sake. They're dug every day. The sign said, potatoes dug daily. And she said to me, who's Doug Daly? But <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's how we dig the potatoes. We, we dig them daily. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're digging potatoes in Ireland here with uh, Liam O'Reardon and Stephen McPhillamy. This is crack. This is what you do in Ireland is you, you can hang out and talk. And uh, this Irish gift of gab, you know, you hear about the Irish gift of gab and you get there and you realize if you have a tough itinerary, you should throw it out the window because you are now in Ireland. You just want to connect with people. You want to enjoy the moment and you want to get into this art of conversation. And I am so charmed by the people I've met and the conversations I've had in Ireland. And I've been thinking about this compared to the Gaelic. Irish people obviously have a flair for the language and a joy in communicating in just a sparring kind of way, in a fun-loving way, in a clever way, in a comedy way, in a romantic way. Uh, And is it... I'm just curious about this. My own theory, Liam, is that it has something to do with coming from a Gaelic heritage, which might be a more flowery way or a creative way to communicate, and then you might be wired that way and sort of 
translating literally from a Gaelic template. Therefore, the Irish gift of gab, whether in Gaelic or English, is different than the Danish or the German or the French gift mm. of gab. What's your thought on that? Well, I think because we've been oppressed over our rule for so long, um, we kind of had to make fun of ourselves. And and I think to all sorts of, of adversity, we, we laughed at it. Eventually, we ended up laughing at each other and saying, you know, there isn't much more they can do to us. Um, funny thing about crack is that anytime Steve calls me or sends me a text message, the opening word is, any crack, sir? So like, what's up? Yeah. What's yeah. up? Any crack? Sir? How to... How to determine what crack is, it's almost impossible to put into words. Um, I remember when I was younger, maybe Steve remembers this, but if you were to go on a foreign holiday from Ireland, you went to the Isle of Man mm-hmm. and you got a boat in Dublin and you ended up in the Isle of Man, which is just a little island off the yeah. English ruled. But right. most of us went to the Isle of Man for our first foreign holiday. And uh, there's a song called The Crack Was 90 in the Isle of Man, which meant that we had so much fun in the Isle of Man, that it nearly was 100, 100%. So it was a 9 out of 10. It was a 9 out of 10, yeah. That's the song? That's the song. So that means the Irish there were having a good time, they're on vacation talking to well, each other, or <laughs> were, they, were you connecting with the locals? Well, we were connecting with the locals, but, we, you know, we could... Uh, was, you, you were outside of Ireland. You brought the fun with you. Brought, you brought the fun with yeah, you. Yeah, I think you're more with your, with your own tribe over yeah. there. That song refers to getting locked up in the prison over there because we drank so much and we were... Because I've heard, up the women I've heard people go to the Isle of Man from Ireland and they can be away from their sectarian divisions and they can just have fun and then they got to go back into their corners when they go back to the island. Maybe that was during the Troubles. Yeah, that would have been during the, the Troubles. The troubles then, they no, got, then they say, I got to go back to my tribe. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness those days are a little, those days are pretty much old school now. Young, all gone, all gone, thank God. Really all gone. I, I love to think they're all gone. I, unfortunately, to my shame, I have to say, didn't go across the border to the north too often when I was young. Yeah. Mainly, I, I have to put my hand up and say I was probably afraid to go across the border because you didn't know what was going to happen. I used to go there to play sports, and one weekend we went there and... Um, during the Troubles? Or after yes, during, during the, the Troubles. During the Troubles, you went into the north. Yes, and uh, one weekend we went there, and the hotel that we stayed in two weeks before had, was gone. It had been blown up. <laughs> and uh, Is that the hotel in Belfast? That's it was so, in Belfast, So yeah. famous for getting yeah, blown yeah, up. What, yeah. What's that hotel? It's the Europa U- Hotel. Europa, yeah. Europa. I stayed there once. I said yeah. extra prayers. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most bombed hotel in <laughs> Europe, I think. But, you know, having said that, I can honestly say that I crossed the border and I have great fun. I think the people up there are amazing. Yeah. I think they're so uh, welcoming. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be giving Steve a big head when I say this, but thank God all those troubles are gone. Isn't that great? Yeah. So there's nothing inherently more friendly and charming and easygoing about a Catholic Irishman than a Protestant Irishman? That's the point I was about to make because there's great crack up the north too and our Protestant brothers in the north of Belfast or Ballymena, wherever they may be, mm-hmm. they love the crack as well. Yeah, because you know, we're all, we're all a, part of this That's a very interesting yeah. thing to me because I, I'm Protestant as can be and, and there is differences in sort of a approach to life between Catholics and Protestants. But in Ireland, you're Irish. Yeah, and obviously you have to respect the fact that the Protestant community will often uh, regard themselves as British, but there is definitely an Irishness about them because yeah. they love they love their singing and they love getting together and playing fun on each other. And you know we're great practical jokers. And you know we well, have it's a dark nice you're humor. at a point now where you can practical joke with each other instead of bomb each other. Yeah, absolutely, it's a beautiful thing. There's a place in North London called Cricklewood, and uh, it's a very Irish area. And we have 32 counties in Ireland, and it's sometimes known as the 33rd county, or as Liam would say, the 33rd county. And <laughs> that's, like, that's good. Rich coming from you. Boom, boom. There's a, there's a, there's a great old uh, this song. Is the, this is a county, the, the extra county that's in London because there's so many Irishmen. Well, it's just, it's just it's a, a, it's affectionate a term, term yeah. for the right. place, but full of paddies, full right. of Irish people. Right. And there's a great old tune, and it says, uh, Oh, mother, this is refers to the 1940s and 50s. Oh, mother dear, I'm over here. I never will come back. What keeps me here is the smell of beer, the ladies, and the crack. There you go, the crack. The what? crack was good in Cricklewood when Paddy went to Cullen. There were glasses flying and women crying. Paddy was coming to die. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm glad that the troubles are diminishing into the past and they become part of your heritage, but the present is more positive and peaceful. Yeah, the last few years have been incredible because, you know, you had the Queen come in 2011. That was a big deal. And there was a few protesters, but there was, Mm -hmm. you know, tens of thousands of supporters and there were a um, few people were oblivious to it, but overwhelmingly it was very successful and you have the Irish and English uh, sports teams playing each other and there's no real animosity anymore and, yeah, people have moved on. Ireland's becoming a, a more progressive, modern 
nation these days. That's the exciting thing about travel is it's a work in progress, and uh, Ireland is one island and one nation that is so accessible. I get the thrill of thinking I'm understanding a foreign language everywhere I go. And uh, the people are so so darn ready to just have a good time. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a little crack with our friends Liam O'Reardon and Stephen McPhillamy. Slancha. 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 And uh, in, in, to say thanks for uh, coming by in, in uh, the traditional Irish, Gorev Mahagot. Gorev Mahagot. It's 100,000 thanks. Again, please. Gorev Mila Mahagot. Gorev Mila Mahagot. It's 100,000 thanks. There you go. That's even more than Gorev Mahagot. Wouldn't be the rare old stuff. Spent the evening getting loved In the Ace of Hearts Where the high stools were engaging Over the footbridge down be the duck The boat she sailed at five o'clock Hurry now lads is whack Or before we're there she'll be all be back Carry him if you can Oh the crack was ninety in the Isle of Man Oh the crack was ninety in the Isle of Man Oh the crack was ninety in the Isle of Man At Travel with Rick Steves, our listeners send us verbal snapshots from their travels in the form of a haiku poem. Here's a set of haiku about travels in Ireland sent in by our listeners. Melinda Smith, that's with a Y, lives in Lakewood, Ohio, and sends us this impression of her visit to Ireland. The last sight of land, I stand where my kin left home. Seals dance in the surf. Carol Snow from Delmar, California, sends us two haiku about stops she made in Ireland. Invigorating, cold winds stop us in our tracks. The cliffs of moor. Blowing and cutting, QC smashing the rejects. Waterford crystal. And Kathy Schaefer of Bellevue, Washington, learned something about Irish history on a visit to Dublin. Celtic flourishes. Decorate the Book of Kells. Borrowed Pagan Art. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to KUCR at UC Riverside and the Radio Foundation in New York City for studio help and to Cheryl Harris for reading today's haiku. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. This week you'll find a program extra with Graham Robb about looking for the remains of old Celtic towns on the hilltops of Ireland. You can join Rick and his guests as a caller on the show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for information about our next recording sessions. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.